This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This is World Cafe. I'm Rena Duris. Nat Meyer's debut full-length album, Yellow Peril, is an album full of poetry. It's beautiful. It is thoughtful. It carries on the blues tradition of documenting and examining American history. It also made Dan Arbach's fingers bleed. Today, Nat Myers joins me for a conversation about Yellow Peril, about how that title refers to his Asian-American identity, about the blues, folk music, busking, Nietzsche, and more. He also tells the story of how he got signed to Arbok's Easy Eye Sound record label after they sent him an offer he didn't believe was real, and what it was like recording that album with Arbok at his house in Nashville. Our chat is coming up in a moment, but first, a live performance from Nat Myers from Yellow Peril. This is Duck and Dodge, live for the World Cafe. Baby, you can't be no more When you're ducking and dodging Baby, can't dive me no more Keys you got Ain't gonna lock my door No, honey, now Baby, at me Where do you sleep tonight? My baby, at me Honey, where do you sleep tonight? Hell's a tangle and you ain't walking right Where, where, what I tell honey now Ain't none of your business now, honey Where I sleep that night Shuck and jive, baby, shuck and jiving all the time when you're shugging and jiving, baby, shugging and jiving all the time. Come in late, why do I wanna go in high? Why, honey, now? You call me tumbling and call me falling down. You call me tumbling, I call it falling down. You build me up, don't let me hit the ground. You call it Call it tumbling, honey I'm calling it falling down I think it's the same damn thing now. Yeah, man Take your time Duck and dodge, baby Duck and dodging all the time You Duck and dodge, baby Duck and dodging all the time Said you come in late why do you wanna go in high? Oh well, honey, my key ain't for your lock no more. Oh well, I cry a little bit, honey. Something like that. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I guess uh, I do got another one to do. This one's called uh, Heart Like a Scroll. 
Um, I kind of base this one. Um, I, I won't do too much talking, but uh, this one's kind of based off of my love for this fellow named Bo Carter. Um, I think his real name is Armitter Chapman. Um, he's famous for his body songs. Like I, I think uh, I think I can say this on air. His one of his more favorite, famous ones is "Let Me Put My Banana in Your Fruit Basket." Um, this, this is a, this is a little more this is a little more PC, you know. But if you get a, if you get a chance to check him out, he's 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 pretty great. You got a heart like a scroll. You got a heart like a scroll. You got a heart like a scroll. Wrap me in it. Baby, wherever you go, I told you once, tell you twice more. Next time you see my love, gonna be walking in your door. Yeah, honey. I love you, honey bunny. Like a fly begin to bloom. You got a heart like a scroll. You got a heart like a scroll. You got a heart like a scroll. Wrap me in it, baby, wherever you go. Go tell your friends, tell your other man. Since you done met me, you gone and had a change of plan. Yeah, yeah. I said I love you. Like a budding tune You got a heart like a scroll You got a heart like a scroll You got a heart like a scroll Wrap me in it, baby, wherever you go Well, one more time You got a heart like a scroll. You got a heart like a scroll. You got a heart like a scroll. Wrap me in it, baby, wherever you go. Performing in front of a live audience for World Cafe, that was Nat Myers. He has a new album called Yellow Carol. I'm Raina Duras. Nat Myers is my guest today. Nat, welcome to the World Cafe. Oh, it's great to be here. We're going to dig into the album in a bit, but first I want to give folks some of your backstory. Uh, you're playing acoustic guitar for us today, but you did not start out on a guitar. You started on trumpet in the school band, <laughs> and in your words, you pulled a who, as in the band, you pulled a who on your trumpet and just destroyed it. Uh, I also played the trumpet in school band, and those things I feel like would be kind of hard to break. How did you destroy a trumpet? Let's start there. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, hopefully that, that's not like an indicator of maybe my, my childhood too much, but maybe it is as well. Well, you know, my, my parents, I think they, they were always trying to, they, they did a bunch of stuff like a lot of parents do, trying to figure out what your kid's like down with, you know? Like I remember, and everything they'd done was just like completely out of my league, you know? Like golf, like I'm, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not a golfer. Uh, never was. I was like one of those kids that they 
and buy it over to the golf course. Like, I'd go to the golf, they'd drop me off at the golf course, and I'd sit at the bar and eat cheese sticks all day, you know what I mean? And so they, they asked me on sixth grade, they, they got me this trumpet, and they're like, you're going to be in band. And I was just like, like all right. You know, my, my good friend Alex Hoffman, he was, uh, he was also in there. So it kind of like greased the wheels just a little bit. But, like, uh, it's, it's so funny. I, I, got, I appreciate something about my parents in terms of their, their sheer stubbornness because I made it very clear I didn't want to play trumpet none. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I kind of come from a pretty rowdy childhood. My, my dad would say tumultuous. And I think, you know, one evening when things kind of, you know, everybody was kind of seeing red, I just remember, yeah, just going, just going full on Townsend on that fella. <laughs> but I, the, the funny thing about the, the, the sheer tenacity of my parents, though, these, I can't imagine, they, they took it to a trumpet repairman. <laughs> and this poor fella, I, I try to imagine what he must have seen. I mean, it was like, it, it looked like, a, you know, like the Titan submersible, this thing had imploded. And this guy somehow was able to like knock all the kinks out and get it back up to work in order. And when they they presented me with this new one, I was like, I was like, sorry, luck, you know. I <laughs> I made it very clear about my opinion on what doing something like this. But my mom started getting mine. The big thing that was, I started playing guitar partially because when I was little, I don't know if this is an exercise of vanity or just imagination, but when I was like, you know, seven, eight years old. I would stand in front of my dad's got a library. He calls his library the man cave. You know what I mean? And uh, he, you know, we, I would just be performing or like uh, I'd be listening to whoever, you know, Arthur Crudup or even Sublime, folks like that. And I would just air guitar pretending like I was playing. And I think, you know, um, also to give my parents some credit, they noticed that about me as well. So um, my mom knew I was left-handed, so she fetched me like a really cheap Yamaha when I was, I don't know, about 13 years old. And it's just kind of been ever since then. I, I wanted to be a poet, so in their mind, it was like choosing the lesser two evils. Like, at least there's like a practical, <laughs> at least there's a concrete thing. I can see what you're doing on this thing, you know what I mean? But When you, you watch know. your hands while you're playing, uh, there's a lot going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're basically self-taught, right? Yeah, I'm completely self-taught. And you've got this cool picking style. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that and how you taught yourself to do it? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually funny. You know, I was talking like uh, to me being self-taught, particularly in the genre that I'm in. You know, I used to think, uh, you know, country blues and things like that. I thought it was some form of distinction. But the more and more I talk with musicians, they're like, heck, not. They're like we're all self-taught, dude. Like there's this fellow named Tom Feldman. He teaches guitar for uh, Stephen Grossman. And he was asking me if I wanted to do some uh some like exercise or something like that, you know, be like, uh, teach some folks about it. And I was like, man, like, I ain't, like, I ain't about, you know, I, I just, I just do my own thing. I never, I don't know how to explain it. And Tom was just like, he's like, dude, like I'm self-taught. Like that's no excuse at all to not teach people what you're doing. He's like, everybody gets up to that point eventually. Oh shoot. I kind of forgot the question. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the kind of uh, picking style that you do. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, I, I do alternate in picking, uh, within country music, they call it Travis picking. I, I, I grown up calling it Piedmont. Um, that's at least kind of the country blues, uh, tradition. That's what we call Piedmont style. I'm talking to Nat Myers on World Cafe. Um, you mentioned that your parents are pushing you towards music, but your first passion was poetry. Mm -hmm. What made you fall in love with poetry as a teenager? Oh gosh, I mean, I think it's it, to me, it's it's very synonymous with blues music. You know, when I when I'm able to perform for audiences or perform for folkies who are coming out for the blues music that I kind of play, I feel like it. I come across somebody that's very much like myself in so far as they're very low down or they felt that low downness and they they love reading 
uh, or they love listening to the music, and oftentimes they're players. I think those three things kind of go hand in hand when it comes to country blues. The same thing with poetry. I just got to say, you know, I, I, I've never been to a therapist, maybe maybe to my detriment, but I think the, the one thing that I've really coped with my own kind of um, aloneness uh, has been writing poetry. Um, you, you went to the New School in New York City and studied poetry there, yeah. but you were writing songs at the same time. Mm-hmm. Eventually you decided to perform some, could you tell us about the first day that you went out and tried busking on the street? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I don't want to get too unkosher here, but um, when I was living up in New York, I, I was I was trapping. I was uh, they call it riding servant up there, um, where I was delivering uh, um, collard greens on on the back of a bicycle um, to various people. And uh, <laughs> I remember I had, I had some close calls. I got I got a shout out to all my homies from Rawway who gave me that gig. They really let me. I mean, I was struggling, you know, I was living off food stamps, stuff like that. You know, my, my bad for moving to the most expensive city and not having a means to make my living, you know what I mean? But it's it's some serious work, and um, I had a number of close calls. We call it getting doored, but, like, you know, people getting out in Uber or something like that into oncoming traffic. Like, I was the victim of that kind of situation a couple of times. I started thinking to myself, it was like, I got a felonious amount of uh, collard greens on my back. <laughs> And I, I kept seeing all these buskers on the block, and I was like, there's a, there's a psychic dissonance here between what I was doing right now, Raina, and what they're doing, because what yeah. I actually want to be doing is what they're doing. Um, and I remember just one day after, after I got doored, I was just like, I hit up my friends, put in my, you know, my hypothetical two weeks with them, and uh, I went out on the block, you know, uh, no money to my name, and I remember I bust for like five hours right off the Bedford stop. I don't know if you've ever been over the L in New York. Um, and I think I made like $20 uh, for like five hours of stuff, you know, it was like a paltry amount. But I remember thinking to myself, I mean, it might as well have been $2,000. I was just like, oh, man, because like that was the first money I'd ever made as a poet, too. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, this is what a poet needs to be doing, man. You know what I mean? Like not, not, not posting up a typewriter outside and charging people for, you know, to write a spontaneous poem, but performing your songs to a bunch of people who could give, you know... <laughs> A, a rat's hoot about it, you know yeah. what I mean? So That must have been an amazing feeling to suddenly have your perspective on it all shift like that. Yeah, and it was also this feeling of like, oh, nobody really cares, but then like the people who like got their earphones in, like they'll come up to you while they're waiting for the bus and they'll throw you a five and you're just like, oh, maybe they ain't listening to nothing. Maybe they're just pretending they're not li- <laughs> they're listening to something. I realize that's that's another thing about busking where you, you really learn. I also come from a skateboarding background, so like failing or like the concept of failure not getting people notice me has never really bothered me none because I always operate by the policy. You, you got to get up and do it again. I think Beckett says, you know, fail once, fail better, right? Um, and I, I've always abided by that. And busking's like one of those things. You know, I, I listened to some of the tracks that I cut when I was busking. I was just like, good lordy, man. But that was the stuff that got my, you know, my manager and my booking agents noticing me. But now I think it's a little embarrassing, you know what I mean? So I think that's the first time I've heard someone bring Beckett into a skateboarding conversation. Oh, hey. <laughs> hey, they, 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 there's a through line somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking to Nat Myers on World Cafe. Um, so when the pandemic hit, busking became kind of impossible, or at least uh, not very lucrative. You kept going, but you did it mostly online. You posted videos of yourself performing on social media. Uh, you posted songs on things like Bandcamp. Um, you're going to perform one of the songs that you posted in 2021 for us next, called Hobo Wine Blues. Nat Myers with Hobo Wine Blues, live yep. for the World Cafe.
My dog, tell me, tell me your history Won't get drunk, sip in your poetry My dog, Lynn Star, speaking in rhyme When they start sipping the whole wine My dog, now me, I'm a simple man Need me the honey gonna understand Has for water, gonna give them gasoline. My dog, they knew who you rock and chair. Got no straight leg, gonna rock over there. My dog, Lenny, show is sweet and kind. Ain't nobody, I swear, hell ain't no clown. I ain't no well off. My dog, let's go, Kentucky gonna have some fun Get drunk, don't gonna look up at the sun Sometimes it seems, whole world down on me Eyes of bad boy did not tend to be My dog, Lenny, sure we kind of sweet When they talking, better than chicken sugary a little bit cotton fans out there now. Shake sugar My dog, let's go to the riverside. Throw your gun in, kick the cat before and fire. My dog, I don't want no diamond ring. Need me the honey, gonna shake that thing. Sometimes it seems whole world down on me. How's a bad boy did not tend to be? Well, I say. My dog, Lenny, so is sweet and kind. When they talking better than buying by. My dog. Then tell me, tell me your history When you sip, sip in the poetry My darling song Speaking in rhyme When they start sipping the whole wine <laughs> Thank you Recorded live for the World Cafe, you just heard Nat Myers with Hobo Wine Blues. It's from a collection of songs he released back in 2021 called Hobo Wine and Remedy Blues. I'm Raina Duras. Nat Myers has a new album out now called Yellow Peril on Dan Arbach's Easy Eye Sound label. And I, I think it was after you put out Hobo Wine and Remedy Blues when Easy Eye got in touch with you through an email that you didn't believe was even real. Yeah, it was, yeah, no, that's that's literally the story that happened. What, what, why didn't you believe it was real? Well, it got well. One, it got sent to the spam folder, so they need to work <laughs> on that. But two, it was like it was like one of those conspicuous emails that was like, "My name's Tom Osborne with Dan Auerbach's Easy Eyes Sound," and then it was like a caption like, 
uh, Dan would like to expressly meet you. Uh, he really likes your sound. And it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know if you've ever been on social media, but, you know, like somebody says they're from California sometimes. It's like, no, nah, like, where? Like, I don't, I think they live on a different continent and they're going to want my, they're going to want my bank account information in the second message. You know what I mean? So, but I actually looked it up and it was, it was like, it was such a deep cut. Like you would have had to seriously nerd out as a fraudster to um, send this email. So I was like, okay, Tom, like that's a pretty random person to pose as, you know what I mean? You recorded the album at Dan's house. <laughs> yeah. why, why did you guys decide to do it at his house when he has a, a studio? Well, simple is, man. Simple does. I think, like, I came down there. You know, we, we did a number of writing sessions. We wrote some songs with Alvin Youngblood, Heart, and uh, uh, Pat McLaughlin, um, this fabulous uh, songwriter from uh, Nashville. On the last day, right before we were going to record stuff, I just remember, like, you know, Dan kind of giving me a stank face and me just kind of looking at him, just being like, like, what do we? He's like, he's like, man, like, we both were having the idea, but he's the one voiced it. He's like, man, he's like, I don't think we should record this in the studio. Um, and I was like, where do you want to do it? And he was like, I got an idea. He's like, let me, like, let me, let me call you tomorrow. He was like, I'm going to send you an address and you just come over. And by the time I was leaving that writing session, um, all of the, like the assistant producers and workers over at Easy Eye Sound, they were kind of taking stock of a lot of the analog stuff and, um, moving it outside. I was like, where are y'all taking that? And they're like, you'll find out tomorrow, man, you know? And so he, he texted me this address and I, I drove over there probably like nine in the morning and it was just, just literally his house. I just pulled up to his house and they had set up, I guess, like earlier in the morning, they'd set up kind of this, I, I think I described it in the liner notes, kind of this Lomaxian daydream. Uh, Dan lives in, I don't want to give too much details in case anyone tries to hit a lick, but he, <laughs> he lives in a really nice, uh, it, a pretty modest like limestone house kind of within city limits over in Nashville. He's got a little bit of land. Um, everybody's amazed that he got any land in Nashville apparently right now, but he, uh, they set up this kind of, he's got this old limestone house from the 19th, uh, 19th century and all these old hardwood floors that probably got about a hundred, 150 years of living into them. And, um, he set up just like a, you know, some bottle mics, some different mics just all around to capture the ambiance. But, um, just had a mic in front of me and I come from a tradition of playing one-offs you know one of the things that also captivates me about um, country blues music and most music you know up until very recently is the that sheer excellence of the playing in terms of like a lot of these guys were doing it you know like Elvis weren't doing no overdubs you know what I mean like that guy that guy was like singing into the can and singing that good and I think that's one of the captivating things about a lot of the musicianship back then and so I came into this thing thinking I would have to do one-off takes, you know what I mean? And so I came in prepared to do that. I remember I'd mess up. I'm like, oh, I'd like almost get through a song. I'd like cut it out. And Alan, the producer on this record with Dan, was just like, no, baby. He's like, he's like, he's like we live in 2022, man. He's like, he's like if, you, if you feel like you ain't got, you know, you ain't got the chops, he's like, just repeat the line. He's like, we can spruce this up. And I got to say, uh, you know, working so, so close with Dan in such a homey environment where you know, Alan weren't separated by glass or nothing. Um, what was so cool about that was I was actually really to see, able to see what producers are able to do. You know, it's like it's like when I look at a painting and, some, you know, if you're not a painter, sometimes you think it's like, I could put paint on a canvas. You know, like I think to myself, I've done these little hot take recordings and stuff like that. But actually seeing this dude doing this almost like schizophrenically fast editing of what I had just done was like really impressive. It was like watching a Da Vinci or something work on the marble, you know? It really gave me a full appreciation for 
true sound designers, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that was that. Let me reintroduce you quickly. I'm talking to Matt Myers on World <laughs> Cafe. We're going to hear some of what you guys did together because you ended up mm-hmm. recording... Um, We recorded the album pretty quickly. Uh, We're going to hear you perform the song Pray for Rain in a moment, but I want to play a bit of the album version first because it features Dan, uh, it features Pat, it also features uh, Leroy Troy on banjo and washboard. Here's some of the album version of Pray for Rain from Nat Myers. Pray for rain, pray for rain, and hope it don't go down the drain. Won't be no more raisin cane. We both pray for rain. So you just heard a bit of the album version of the song Pray for Rain from Nat Myers' new album, Yellow Peril. And now we're going to hear the live version. Nat Myers, Pray for Rain, live for the World Cafe. Yeah, let's give it an old try, Raina. It drag you round my back pocket, carry you with me every day. I'm gonna build you a garden somewhere to put your heart in. All we gotta do is pray for rain, pray for rain, pray for rain. Hope it don't go down the drain. Won't be no more razor cane. We both pray for rain. Four years in, I still want more. I ain't walking out the door. I'm hoping for that you feel the same. We've been working nine to five, done our best to stay alive. And all we gotta do is pray for rain. Pray for rain, pray for rain. Hope it don't go down the drain. Won't be no more raisin. We both pray for rain Where don't you raise no sand, honey? When I'm out on my long haul I call you Start balling, ain't no use fretting this away. I told you once and I tell you twice, I'm gonna be your ever loving man for life. And all we gotta do is pray for rain. Pray for rain, pray for rain. Hope it don't go down the drain. Won't be no more raisin cane. We both pray for rain. Said to be no more raisin cane. We both pray for rain.
Thank you. Thank y'all so much. This one's about um, where I was from. It's based off of Cassie Jones by um, Furry Lewis. Um, Cassie Jones is like an old standard. Um, but my thing is like, you know, particularly uh, when it comes to train songs and things like that, I guess like artistically discuss kind of like that. You know, where does somebody in 2023 who ain't riding on the rails, who does play blues music? I mean, a lot of, a lot of blues musicians, despite kind of the general atmosphere, didn't ride rails, you know what I mean? And uh, I myself am not a traveler, even though I've, I've definitely hung out with ramblers like that. Yeah, it's just how do you approach that without being a fake, you know what I mean? Um, so this one's just called 7571. It's about running around after some gals and uh, get, getting one of the one of the lovers I I had a DUI. Not on my not <laughs> she got it herself. But I I was I was loosely involved. I was adjacent to the entire thing, you know what I mean? So anyway, don't drink and drive. This ain't a ain't a PSA, but <laughs> Asking around if my baby there Said she gone to boom outside the sun Living off old the 71, the 71 Living off old the 71 I spy my baby easy as she go Said she gone down the Louisville Road Said I go to Mountain Washington Can't join you, can't call my tongue Can't call my tongue Doing, you can't call my tongue I drive down on the 75 I get a lead and 10 before I die Lexington gas, you kind and sweet Handsome as she need, as she need Like them Philly gals, I'm sure, man Handsome as she need Then I go Louisville, I was gonna drown Think about my baby, turn back around Catch me a ticket on the riverboat Can't drive, then I guess I float I guess I float Can't drive the hood, I guess I float Met a hobo, I can where you going Said I'm head to Oklahoma, ain't no fun Last night I lay my head on the railroad line Met the train, said it fire my mind So fire my mind You still here, man? I let the train say to find my mind I dreamt a dream I was on the LNN I rode it to another land I know somewhere I can eat and sleep Down South Memphis, Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee Down South in Tennessee I said, enough for me, I'm gonna cut in the hill Live today, honey, don't get killed Catch me a ride on old Route 8 Get a ticket on that Symphony and the Symphony Dollar 25 a man, catch a ride in the Symphony Then I go to Rabbit Head Where my baby told me this and that she said, don't know me, oh my, tell me the truth, don't tell no lie, tell no lie. 
Tell you the truth and don't tell no lie Well, I go to Burnham and Pike Where my baby got a DUI After jail, I bought a morning sun She didn't want to see me none, see me none True story, man After jail, I didn't see me none Don't tell no lie I give the man who don't tell no lies with 7571 recorded in front of a live audience for World Cafe. I'm Raina Duras talking to Nat Myers about his new album, Yellow Peril. Um, did the girl that you're singing about in that song about the DUI, has she ever heard that song? Do you know? Yeah, she sure has. <laughs> What'd she say? I usually only use that lyric when I'm performing live, but I remember telling her I wrote a song about her and she was like, you're like, oh, cool. You know what I mean? Uh, we're, we're still pretty close. Uh, I want to holler to Kate Birds. We ain't talking bad about you up here. You know what I mean? <laughs> That song takes us to Tennessee. It takes us to Kentucky. Kentucky's where you grew up. Mm -hmm. Could you describe the part of Kentucky that you grew up in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like uh, I live right across the river, Cincinnati. So uh, North Kentucky's always been kind of this crossroads. It's not completely south. You know, it's it's too north. So people down south don't think it south enough and it's too far south for people up north to think it's north you know and uh i think kentucky generally speaking if you ask most kentuckians you probably they probably tell you it's kind of its own thing it's interesting that you, you mentioned how you know north kentucky is sort of a crossroads it's uh, considered too far north to be south too far south to be north because you are korean american and i feel like that puts you in in a sort of a crossroads in a way um mm -hmm. when you're growing up there were there a lot of kids who looked like you? Oh heck no! I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe like there was this one fella. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Who was a great old, older than me, but I mean, he was kind of a, a, a really cool dude. But you know, he was he, he was good at math and he was good at academics stuff like that. I was just I was always kind of a um, I don't know a crap kicker. I'm trying to trying to not speak so much French up here, but yeah, I'm just. <laughs> uh, I didn't really do things right. I didn't go to school. I played hooky. You know, I just I just hung out with a bunch of, I don't know, bad seeds, I guess. You know what I mean? Uh, my, my mom would sometimes get calls. I skateboard a lot. My mom would get calls from her parent or like her friends, her Korean, like my Ajimas, and they'd be like, you need to look after your son. Like I just saw him skating down Dixie Highway with just like the bottom of the barrels. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> but those are those, those, those folks are my real friends. What was your relationship like to the Korean side of your heritage? It's actually very complicated, and uh, my, you know, my, my mom likes to tell me, and one, one of the impetuses for me wanting to write Yellow Peril was, um, when you're looking at me, you know, I read, I read, I read writers like Franz Fanon who are actually able to kind of put into perspective what I felt as a little, you know, as a little kid, but, you know, up until like, you know, I was six or seven years old, I thought I was white. I, it didn't, I, it didn't, I didn't understand, and then um, you know, I got bullied in school a bit. I started hanging out with those, you know, the bad seeds, and they were the ones that actually showed me what true friendship was, and people really didn't mess with me once I started hanging out with them. But I, I used to get bullied a lot, you know, just the normal archetypical stuff that kids kind of do. You know, going back on my mom, she says I ain't Korean because I don't speak the language. I've never been over to Korea. To her, that's what makes a Korean. 
But her own story within Korea is very dynamic. And in a certain ways, the country's rejected her. You know, I think she was born out of wedlock. Um, and I don't know if it's like this today, but back in the day, you were just, you were, you, you did not get citizenship as a South Korean unless you were born legitimately. And so my mom, you know, has been deprived of these certain things from her own culture, but she wears it with such pride. And I always like to joke with her when she'd say stuff like that. I was like, mom, I was like, I was like, you, you think you're Korean. I ain't Korean. But I was like, anybody around here who asked you, like, my friends thought you were Chinese, mom. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think it's, it's interesting how the pride um, can sometimes, like, maybe not intentionally alienate me from my own kind of heritage. It's just she's so proud of being Korean. Like, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a Kentuckian who happens to be a Korean. That's how I, that's how I look at it. Um, but over this pandemic, especially, it's uh, my own understanding of what Pan-Asian identity is. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes I'll see cats who are playing in, you know, Americana music or Roots music. Like, there ain't a lot of cats who look like me, but I was just over at this Dreamy Draw Festival. And uh, there, was this, there was this other half-Korean dude. I was just like, I was like, I was like, holy mo. I was like, what? I was like, I was like. It's like, man, you want a gig? Like, yo, how can I lift you up, my dude? You know what I mean? And I, I think I, I definitely have, like, a certain amount of pride for my background in terms of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, country music and Americana music have a reputation for being very, like, white-dominated. Blues mm -hmm. is considered a, a black art form. It's also been... Um, it's played a big role in civil rights and things like that. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on why blues are such a powerful way to communicate those feelings and experiences. And if you kind of feel a kinship with communities like the black community being oh, Asian-American. I mean, a lot of my, a lot of my friends growing up, you know, like there, there weren't a lot of people of color where I was from, but a lot of my, a lot of my homies were people of color. And, um, since I've been playing blues music, all my, all my friends I worked on to serve with were people of color. And, um, in terms of, you know, like, why is blues music the best avenue? I mean, that might be the answer. It's like, maybe, maybe it's because it's black music. Maybe that's why. But also, I think, you know, it's another context where blues music has always been a conduit. You know, you got the, I love me some Joe Bonamassa, but you got this, you got this, uh, you, you got these two, you know, you can play a standard blues cover, you know, like Dust My Broom or something like that. But blues narrative is so powerful in terms of its scope to approach the now to where, um, it doesn't matter uh, like what your background is. I think the the actual it's like it's like you know the English don't hold sway to the entire you know sonnet form. You know what I mean? And I think it's it's a context in terms of like this this is the best conduit to create um, narrative. I think of uh, you know one, one of my favorite civil rights songs is Black White Brown by Big Bill Brunsey. If any of y'all heard that song, or Alabama Blues or Vietnam Blues by J.B. Lenoir. You know, like a lot of these blues musicians back in the day were approaching it. They're not, their songs aren't, those songs aren't going to get on the radio or get the most airplay for them, but civil rights has always been a part of the conversation within blues song. So um, I thought Yellow Peril and talking with Dan too, because I definitely came from that tradition of like, oh, I'd love to learn all the Robert Johnson songs. You know, I'd love to learn all the Charlie Patton songs. But truth is, like I was talking with Dan, he, he told me this story. He was like, man, he was like, he was like, I used to play with this guy who played all the folk rooms back home in Akron. And, um, you know, he knew all the Robert Johnsons and he knew all the Elmore Jameses. And he just kind of looked at Dan, looked at me. He was like, he's like, what do you think that fella's doing right now? I was like, I don't, like, I don't know what he's doing. He's like, man, he's playing the same folk rooms. He's still playing those Robert Johnson covers. He's still playing those Elmore James covers. And he was like, Blue, he's like, blues is supposed to talk about your story and where you at right now. 
It's like the, the old standards and the stuff that got you into this music, playing them covers, like that's never going to go away. He's like, but, and you should never use that as an excuse not to create your own story within this because, I mean, you, you, you got an up in it. You have, a, you have a place within the conversation. And I think, you know, there's, there's certain people, I think, uh, uh, I think within the dynamic is, you know, you're talking, like it is a predominantly black music that I think also is experiencing or has experienced within the genre um, a certain amount of feeling of whitewash in it. And uh, simultaneously, I think it's also, to me, it's kind of, it's such a small pool of people. It's like, it's, it's like blues music, whether you're playing country blues or electric blues, it's such a small community of people and any kind of intertribalism to me just doesn't seem to benefit anything. Um, simultaneously, I think that conversation needs to be had when it comes to, you know, who gets the spotlight or who, who is getting that attention. I think folks like Buffalo Nichols or, you know, uh, Corey Harris, a, a number of people within the conversation are very, I think, outspoken about that and do it in a nuanced way. Um, where I think the important thing is, like, you know, to continue to lift up black music, you got to lift up black performers, straight up, you know what I mean? So... Um, as somebody who plays as a you know a half Korean American playing black music, I'm kind of a triple oxymoron to people. You know what I mean? And that's cool. That's cool. But you know, it's like sometimes people come up to me and they ask me why I speak this way. And it's like why you speak the way you speak, man. You know, it's like I, I, I'm swimming in my own soup. Yeah. It's like you think I was born in Seoul and just picked this up when I was down here. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's it's a it's it's a curious dynamic where it's just like I've always been exposed to blues music and it's been so inherent to my own story and what I have experienced in my childhood and growing up um, that it's like anything that operates by prohibition, I think this, this, this goes for anything, anything that operates by prohibition can't abide. If anybody who's tell you know, like somebody tell me I can't play blues music, whether you be black or white, um, but you ain't gonna stop the 200, 200 dudes in Japan who are holding it down right now. You know what I mean? Like blues music, it's, everything's so postmodern now it's very difficult, I think, to put a pin on anything. And anybody wants to put a pin on it, it's like you've already missed the, the entire board in the first place. Because we're just, I mean, it's 2023, you know what I mean? You got, you got people in Denmark playing, blue, playing Robert Johnson covers, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's yeah. like how, do you, how do you stop that trend? Anyway. The world is uh, it's getting smaller all the time. Yeah. yeah. I'm talking to Nat Myers on World Cafe. The last song that we're going to hear you perform it sees you carrying on that sort of civil rights blues tradition, but again, expanding this by telling your own story. It's the title track, it's Yellow Peril, which is a racist anti-Asian term. You wrote the song during the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you talk about writing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, you know, Nietzsche always said that time's a circle, you know? I, I think, what, what's, that, what's that movie, True Detectives? They say time's a flat circle, you know? Um, but I don't think it's a circle. I don't think things repeat themselves. I think it's a corkscrew. I think it's a roll. I, I think it's a. I think it's. I think it's a loop and a roller coaster. It amplifies the things that don't get resolved in the past. Just get amplified and they create worse. I think we're witnessing that to a certain extent. You know, I don't want to typify nothing that's going on in the world right now. But it's like we're we're living. We're we're all waiting for Godot right now. We're all living these same, the, the, these kind of same narratives. Yellow peril is a term that primarily comes from the early 20th century to describe an overarching general feeling of a fear of the, you know, at the time they called it the Orient, but of East Asia. And to me, that's kind of expanded too. It's not just East Asians. It's, you know, I, to me, I got, I got a stock in the narrative of Bangladeshi folks too, of Indian folks as well. They're Asian folkies too. And I think, 
I think that that's, that comes back from a deeper understanding of what Pan-Asian identity is, especially, especially when the pandemic started happening. When all this start, started come, like happening, you know, you started hearing about this stuff out east. I think, you know, my mom and like a lot of people, you know, my mom was basically just saying, just you wait, my dude, you know, just <laughs> just just wait for how this stuff's going forward. And I think I think she was she was pretty spot on. And it also comes from a practical point of view. You know, I'm talking highfalutin about concepts and stuff. But, you know, I just became very concerned that, you know, my mom going to a grocery store can suddenly, you know, be accosted or potentially violated by some, you know, some mentally deranged person who's just like operating on whatever slogans they've heard and is like kind of translating that into the real world. And I just wanted to create something that spoke to that experience and also the uncertainty, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's become so politicized about like where, where this thing kind of originated or where, where it came from, you know? Uh, the Spanish flu, they're saying, started in Kansas now, you know what I mean? So it's just like, it's, it's, one of these, it's one of these weird things where it's like, I don't know. And I don't think the actual song, like I don't do as many asides as I do live as I'll do for y'all here, but within the story itself, so, songs are never concrete to me and they're always kind of developing and um, processing. So within the music and within the song itself, I'm, I'm battling a little, little bit more about the lyrics that I wrote with Dan and um, Pat. But I think something that really concerns me is that despite the conversations that are going on when it comes to Israel, Palestine, Iran, Russia, um, you can. I, I'm. I'm pretty sure if you ask anybody at the Pentagon, the real geopolitical conversation that's going to be going on in the 21st century is the United States' relationship with China. And I think as things continue to heat up in that conversation, as they're expecting it to do, the rhetoric's not going to go nowhere. And as I was saying, a lot of people growing up, a lot of my good friends thought I was Chinese. You know, so the just understanding, I think, or bringing about a little more nuance to the conversations that's needed. And I'm. I'm also just a little fearful of. Um, not really being able to really put a dent in where the things are going to be going in the next decade or two decades. So, have you had anybody, any Asian people, react to this song who've talked to you about it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I gotta say, I wrote this song. I'm not afraid to admit I wrote this song very myopically. You know, I'm, I'm speaking very from a practical point of view. And being able, I think, one of the great joys of being able to having this song come out is being able to engage with other people who look like me or come from a background like me or, you know, first generation born, their parents are off the boat um, or their second generation or something. And everybody has their own concept and own comprehension about what the term means. There's a lot of misconceptions about the Asian community too, where, you know, you have this, and it's partially engaged by the entertainment and, enter you know, we got the crazy rich Asians. We got these, this coastal kind of concept of what being Asian means in America. And the truth is that it's the fastest growing demographic, but it's also the most socially stratified. The, the richest Asians are richer comparative to the poorest Asians than in any other demographic. You know, you go up to New York, you, I'm sure even around here, you know, like who, who are a lot of the people doing the picking out here? It's, it's women who look like my mom, you know, and uh, ladies struggling on that angle. So I think just creating more kind of nuance to that. And it's also been such a great, refreshing thing to be able to engage with other people in their stories um and it just kind of reminds me uh like oh man i'm really glad i wrote this song you know what i mean and it's also one of those things where it's like i'm bringing more i want to say you know they're like i was just talking about people playing blind blake and stuff over in japan but being able to bring more cats into you know blues or roots music who aren't part of that demographic because it is you know for better or for worse it is very whitewashed still 
Um, being able to bring people who have a different ilk, different kind of background, different cultural background, and feel like maybe they didn't have any stock in, you know, the sad boy country or whatever. Um, kind of looking at my music and being like, oh, well, maybe this is my entrance into learning about blues or roots music, generally speaking. Will you play this song for me? I'd absolutely too. Yeah, better be a dang good one after I gave you 500 <laughs> words. Live for the World Cafe, <laughs> it is Nat Myers with Yellow Peril. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Thank you so much, Ryan. My back door, oh dear. Well, I don't know, man, that's what they say, you know. Headed off the pole, Lord, you headed up across the land, oh dear. Like my mother, you know. Where to tell me that you looking like a yellow man, oh dear. Oh yeah, man, like my brother. You headed down Louisiana and you headed up Michigan, oh It's the yellow peril, yellow peril, yellow peril man. It's the yellow peril, yellow peril, yellow peril man. Wanna get a call on his hand a little too small, Charlie? What they say, man? We're not to get you until about who you are. You better move down the line and try to find another What is it, man? It's the yellow peril Yellow peril Yellow peril, man It's the yellow peril Yellow peril Yellow peril, man Everywhere I've been, somebody been abused Son of a bone loose. Well, did the truth, man, but it ain't. Well, we don't want to have a little fun before we die. Oh, that right, man, I hope not. Never ever was no difference between you and I. say one more thing it's 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 funny uh my my good friends my my good friends back home 
they they work in a factory setting, so they got they got to wear them big like them big uh, earplugs, you know. I don't know what they're called, but them like headsets that they got put on. And my friend Drew was like, uh, he was like, man, he texted me the other day. He's like, we've been listening to your we've been listening to your music on the loudspeaker over at work, man. He's like, I really love that Yellow Barrel song, man. <laughs> I was like, Yellow Barrel. I was like. <laughs> Like tell tell me you, you ain't looked at you ain't looked at the song list without telling me you ain't looked at the song list. I'm you know? really curious what he thinks. It's like oh, you're actually singing about like what this the trials and tribulations of this yellow barrel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. It's like what is this a Niagara Niagara Falls song? What was it about? In front of a live audience for World Cafe, Nat Myers with the title track to his new album Yellow Peril. Nat Myers is my guest today. Thanks for playing for us, and thanks for this conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yo, thank you so much, Ryan. It's been the same. Thank you. I'm Rena Duras. We'll be back in a moment with more World Cafe. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.